You're listening to Book Stories, a podcast about bookstores, the books inside them, and book culture. I'm your host, Vic Singh. Please subscribe to Book Stories on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you listen to shows. And thanks so much for helping us spread the word. Coming up is my conversation with Jeff Dyer. I've been a big fan of Jeff's writing for a long time, and this was a special sit-down for me. He's written about things I care deeply about and articulates them in ways that often paralyzes me on the page. I viscerally react to Jeff's musings time and time again. I learn, I laugh, I cry, and most importantly, I become better. I'll stop there. Here's my conversation with Jeff Dyer discussing his new book, Broadsword Calling Danny Boy, and much more. I'm Jeff Dyer, author of Broadsword Calling Danny Boy. You're listening to Book Stories. So, Jeff, thank you for being here. Thank you. Uh, The subjects you tackle, jazz, art, tennis, are some of my obsessions, and your writing has had a profound impact on me during some rough patches, uh, and I'm grateful to be able to sit down with you. Well, do you want to tell me about the rough patches? Oh, maybe. <laughs> we'll, get, we'll get into it. But I, there's, a lot, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, before we discuss your new book, um, you're the author of four novels, seven works of nonfiction. Um, I read that you don't distinguish between fiction and nonfiction. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah. Um, the, I mean, I think the difference between me and most nonfiction writers is that... Um, I don't feel that it's the subject matter so much that makes my books uh, attractive to people, if it does make, <laughs> if, if they are attractive to anyone, that is. I mean, I think it's more the way that the subjects are treated that's important. So, for example, uh, this new book of mine, Broadsword Calling Danny Boy, it's the second book I've written about a film. And the first one was uh, about Andrei Tarkovsky's film, Stalker, which, you know, is a very, very serious film that not many people have seen, the only thing that that book had going for it really was the fact that you didn't have to have seen the film in order to, have, to enjoy the book. And I think that is my goal in uh, the non-fiction books, to get people to read them irrespective of the subject matter. To that extent, I think there's some similarities with uh, fiction writers, whereby it's, you know, style and stuff like that that draws people to a particular novelist's work rather than... Uh, you know, what it's about. White Sands, just mentioned to you off mic a moment ago, is uh, one of my favorite collections of yours. The opening piece, the way you end it, uh, is a piece of writing that I come back to often. In Pilgrimage, you write about Adorno's California period, and you cited Minima Moralia as an important book for you. When I read that, I got the book. I haven't read it yet. Um, It's sitting on my bookshelf on one of many, as you can imagine, that people accumulate over the course of a lifetime. Can you talk a little about him and that book in particular and its significance to you in your life? Oh, sure, yeah. I mean, Adorno is a, you know, uh, a figure that is almost synonymous with high intellectual seriousness part of what we now call the Frankfurt School. And uh, he was part of that great wave of uh, emigres forced out of uh, Germany, uh, fleeing Nazism. And uh, of course, a lot of them came to to America, first in Adorno's case, first of all, to New York. But then what I found it was so interesting, 
that these very, very serious intellectuals who really despised mass culture because it sort of it was there to entertain the masses and keep them stupid rather than raise them to a, a state of consciousness whereby they could listen to Beethoven and read Marx, this kind of stuff. They all ended up in uh, in Los Angeles, you know, the absolute heart of what they called, you know, the the cult, the, the you know, sort of mindless entertainment. And I liked, if you will, the comedy of that, the way that Thomas Mann, uh, who employed Adorno as his musical advisor when he was writing Dr. Faustus, Horkheimer, Schoenberg, whose wife, by the way, was very miffed when tour guides would point out the house of, I think it was Shirley Temple across the road, but they wouldn't point out that the great atonal composer Arnold Schoenberg lived here. Anyway, I liked the way they all ended up living here so implausibly. I liked the comedy of that, but also Minima Moralia is one of the books that um, Adorno wrote while he was here in um, in California during the Second World War. It's a collection of aphorisms, and what I like about it is that um, its dialectical thought raised to such an incredible pitch that he'll put forward something, then reverse it, then reverse the reversal, and so you get this kind of ever-tightening spiral of thought. But it's not; it's about such a wide range of things. I remember, for example, the way that he talks about uh, why it's imp- important that people walk in the streets as opposed to running. Uh, and he says, you know, as soon as people run in the street, there's a slight scent of fear, the kind of fear because of uh, they must be running from something, as back in the day when we had to run from saber-toothed tigers or something like that. He talks about the way that, you know, the joy of slippers resides in the fact that you can slip your foot into them without bending down to tie them up because we don't like bending down. Of course, he's referring to a very specific Noel Coward type slipper. Anyway, there's just tons of stuff like that. And I found it endlessly stimulating on everything from the lowest level, i.e. your slippers, right up to, uh, you know, what it is that's so wonderful about great composers. Was your path to Los Angeles equally as implausible? (laughs) Did you follow some sort of inspirational, like, precedent, or...? Well, I mean, I'm part of a... uh, There's a, a long tradition of British people coming out to, uh, uh, let's say, the, the west of America yeah. um, and to California and uh, Los Angeles in particular. You know, that uh, a fellow very tall English writer, Aldous Huxley, lived here. I mean, there's just loads of them. Uh, sure. It's uh, the attractions of, of California are obvious. And for a long while, I, I really believed it was my destiny to live in California, which I wasn't doing. And I would always say to my wife, you know, my whole life is a failure because, I've, because of my failure to live in California. But here we are speaking so you in California. It. I made it. Um, there's a great line in uh, Pilgrimage where you say, I am a person who reads Adorno. What kind of a person reads Adorno? That's I wrote the, that question underneath the book, underneath the, underneath the sentence with an intention to ask you that question one day, and here I am asking you. Yeah, well, you need a bit of context there because it's, uh, I think I'm alluding to, uh, there's a line in one of the Karl Ove Nausgaard books where he's, he talks about his own experience of reading Nars- right. uh, reading Adorno. And he says he's not just reading Adorno. He's also conscious that he's the kind of person who reads Adorno, I, a person of some considerable seriousness. And 
I talk about the way that now, you know, to be seen reading volume four of the Nows, of Nausgaard's My, My Struggle is a sign of, uh, you know, I'm a cool, you know, in, intellectual type. Yeah. And Adorno is the ultimate, I mean, the f- stupid phrase I use is, you know, he's the ultimate badge author like that. But I was drawn to Adorno through a not unfamiliar route, really, and you know, of Walter Benjamin, all this kind of critical theory stuff that... Uh, that you tend to be very into when you're in your in your early 20s. Sure, of course. We've all been there. <laughs> um, moving to the subject of jazz quickly, you wrote you wrote But Beautiful, um, which I really enjoyed, uh, which is about jazz, and it's the first work of yours that I read. And the reason I read it was because I was curious about the kind of person who endeavors to articulate jazz in writing. And you approached it from the standpoint of a layperson, which I liked. I found that accessible because I can't read bars or notes of music either. There's a really famous Igor Stravinsky card I got from a friend of mine in college that says, I have not understood a bar of music in my life, but I have felt it. And so I I had that same sentiment when I was reading But Beautiful. Um, when did the jazz bug bite you? Um, what are some of your all-time favorite jazz recordings? And thoughts on the present state of jazz oh yeah god what a i mean what a what a what a powerful triple decker question that is <laughs> i guess i got into thank jazz. you for indulging <laughs> yeah in the uh, in the, the mid 1980s living in london and two things were going on one with a friend who really knew his way around the sort of jazz pantheon we'd listen to records by coltrane or whatever you know, in in the shared house we were living in, and that was that was great. But also at the same time, there was a jazz revival going on, and what this meant is that a load of black kids, exactly the same age as me, you know, uh, the sons really of of you know immigrants who'd come over on the Windrush, and were, yeah, really exactly the same age as me. Uh, they were both discovering, listening to jazz, but unlike me, they were playing it. So what happened is that even though jazz had kept going and, you know, people like, you know, Alan Skidmore and stuff, these middle-aged guys, you know, wearing their pullovers or whatever, they played jazz to a very high standard. You know, it was not not very cool, but at this particular moment, there was a new demographic for it and it was a cool thing to do. And a third thing was going on that at the same time we could go to see, you know, Courtney Pine playing at the local bar near me or Steve Williamson or Julian Joseph or whatever. These kids are exactly my contemporaries, you know, mid, mid, mid to late 20s maybe. At the same time that was going on at Ronnie Scott's, uh, people who had played with Coltrane, Elvin Jones was there a lot, McCoy Tyner or, um, you know, Lester Bowie from the Art Ensemble of Chicago. So there was a direct connection between this really great, cool scene that was happening then in London and uh, a living connection with the music we were listening to at home on record. So it was um, it was just the perfect moment to to get into it then and it felt very yeah incredibly exciting and and it was yeah. uh, but then then something happened i mean i've i've wrote the book and uh, at any one time i think only one kind of music is really dominant so at the t- at the time i mean i was into jazz and then really it became impossible not to get into uh, electronic and dance music. So in the 1990s, when that was really just, I mean, just as the peak period of inventiveness in jazz, when some new great album from the late 1950s into the uh, the 60s, some new revolution in jazz was happening every other week. So electronic music was developing so fast that I moved from jazz. I mean, I haven't got time to trace the path now, but yeah, uh, 
thank God I did eventually move in, move on from jazz to house and techno, which yeah. was, you know, just so, so exciting. I feel so blessed that I experienced both of these two things as they were happening in London. Yeah, I'm sure the the I was a DJ for a period of time as well, and there's a total connection between jazz and electronic music. Yeah. Um, did you were you a fan of the bossa nova? Uh, Stan Getz, Antonio Carlos Jobim. Is that did that? Not so much. Okay. But it's funny that you mentioned that connection between jazz and electronic music because, and going back to your earlier question, the other part of your question yeah. about the uh, jazz now. I mean, I've been so crazy for a long while about this Australian trio, The Necks. You know, oh, yeah, yeah. N-E-C-K-S. Yeah. And, you know, they're an acoustic trio when they play live. But when they record in the studio, there's a certain amount of overdubbing and, you know, um, programming, this kind of stuff. And then just a couple of times when I'm blowing on, as I always have been doing about The Necks, a couple of people have said, you know, oh, you like The Necks, then you you should really listen to Dawn of Midi. You know them? No. Oh, my God. It's so there again. Uh, it's a piano, bass, and drums trio. But, I mean, it. I just don't know what they're doing because it sounds like electronic music. And this is... I'm, oh, I'm so glad you haven't heard of them because I thought I was embarrassingly late to the party. I'm and, embarrassingly late on a lot of musical things, but I do my best. I'm well, a, I, I aspire. <laughs> okay? So, at the moment, yeah, I'm really listening a lot to their, their main album, Dysnomia. Okay. D-Y-S-N-O... M-I-A, I guess, Dawn of Midi. And it's just incredible. It's, uh, I mean, it's, um, and I was referred to it by this English uh, composer, Charles Hazelwood. Uh, we were having an email exchange about the necks and minimalism generally. He said, oh my God, you've got it. You're going to love Dawn of Midi. And he's absolutely right. They're amazing. Amazing. Thanks for sharing that. Coming to your recent book, Broadsword Calling Danny Boy, uh, I watched Where Eagles Dare yesterday, actually. I'd seen it a long time ago, but I felt I needed to kind of like immerse myself in it again. Where did the idea to articulate a sort of play-by-play about movies come from? You mentioned your first one as well. Where did the genesis of this idea come from for you? Yeah, do you know, I would say, I mean, two things. I don't think it had a genesis and it wasn't even an idea. You know, I just started writing about Stalker uh, in a particular sort of tone, really, a tone that was quite jokey, that was considered perhaps in an inappropriate way to talk about this work of art, this film of such deep seriousness. And uh, I just started at the beginning, really, and I sort of summarized what was going on in film, and I just kind of, in the film, and I just kind of liked doing it, really. And It's very natural. Yeah. It's, a, it's very modern, too. Yeah. It's very much like live blogging or live tweeting your experience, it, only you do it in a very eloquent and articulate fashion, but it just feels right for the time. Yeah, and it was just so, it was the, I think what it was, just the, I started having, I mean, the key thing for me is that uh, it wasn't that I had, um, I didn't just sort of envisage this as a concept or a methodology. It was just something I was having fun doing. And, and also it made sense with Stalker because that's a film which takes the form of a very literal physical journey that these three people, you know, go on as they try to uh, enter the zone. Of course, as the film proceeds, the literal, physical, geographical journey gives way to an increasingly metaphysical one. So it makes sense that, in a way, that in order to remain faithful to the spirit of the film, then the book, too, has to start going on these kind of um, digressions and stuff. So yeah. it's a, they're, they're sort of necessary digressions. So that it just seemed to be a way of really getting... Um, I mean, I, I think it was 
Keith Jarrett who said about you know when you're playing jazz you've got to get close as close to the to the source material as possible and this was a way of bringing commentary really right up against the uh, you know the the work that I'm I'm commenting on I love it. We do um, a Sopranos retrospective podcast where we go through each episode with a fine-tooth comb. It's sort of the model that you have here with these two books. Um, it's very, again, I use the word modern, but it's just, it's perfect for the, the environment that we're in. And it's a way to reflect on old material and bring it into the present, which you do. You talk about heat. You talk about a lot of stuff in there that was very much not about where Eagles Dare. Um Talk about turning on the TV and seeing the same movies at more or less the same parts. You mentioned this. It's a phenomenon that I've encountered numerous times with one of my favorite movies. Pick any Rocky movie, and it's always on, and I always find myself pausing and catching up with it. But I like the way you describe that that sort of out-of-body experience of like catching the same movie at the same parts and wondering if that is the only time that it airs. Um, yeah, that's right. It's, I mean, so Stalker is a film that uh, I've seen many times, but almost always until I came to write the book, always going to the cinema and seeing it from beginning to end. Whereas where Eagles Dare, if you're in England, it's a film that's on all the time. So I was struck by the way how when I came home slightly drunk from the pub and if, um, you know, if I turned on the TV, uh, it always seemed to be the same part that I was seeing. So it's a film that I've seen bits of many times. And in particular, there's this one particular part that I kept coming across. And so then, as a partly as a joke, I said, well, is that either because they arrange to screen it from the beginning at roughly the sort of time that, you know, people are going to get back from a bar or whatever. But then it also it occurred to me that, oh, maybe they only transmit that uh, that that particular part of it. Big Brother's watching us. Yeah, that's right. And it's, <laughs> it's a joke, but it's just so, it does seem so odd the way that I've seen that particular part so much more than any others. What about the reverse phenomenon? A movie that you don't get to see nearly enough of when you're mindlessly looking for something to watch. Does anything come to mind? Well, For me, it was Heat when you mentioned uh, Heat. I was thinking, you know, that's a movie that should be on TV more. Or, yeah, I mean, in a sense, it's when before the sort of current era um, when everything is available at you know either for free on netflix or you know everything is available pretty much uh you know there was a time when the only way you could see a film like stalker was when it was part of some uh oh you know if it was on at some revival house some sort of tarkovsky retrospective so you're always getting these magazines like the la weekly as it would have been or time out in london to see if you know if this um uh, sort of like some sort of cosmological uh, planetary phenomenon if it was going to hove into view so there were lots of films like that that i just didn't get a chance to see so the other day for example at the the aero cinematheque even though i could have seen it on a computer i actually went to see uh, jean-luc godard's one plus one it's the film he made as you know about the uh, the recording of um the rolling stones song sympathy for the devil uh, famously intercut with these idiotic set pieces featuring the london black panthers and it's just it's a legendarily terrible film and it really is daft except for what it could have more simply been it's documentary value as um, as a record of the making of this uh, film and i i mentioned that in the stalker book actually because after it was made uh, mick jagger came up with what i think is a wonderfully british or english bit of film criticism he said the thing about jean-luc godard is he's such a fucking twat <laughs> amazing 
What are your thoughts on the pairing of Richard Burton and Clint Eastwood? Oh, yeah. Where does it rank for you as far as pairings go? Yeah, there's some that's a that's a real bro, bromance there, and I think it's it's um it's a version of that re- really quite weary thing of the you know the unlikely couple. But actually, it's I think the two complement each other very well. In the original version of the script, I think there was a a more equitable balancing up of um, the number of Germans they killed, and then it was decided that actually. Burton, with his amazing voice, uh, would do more of the talk, and Eastwood would do more of the killing. So I think it, it's um, it's this thing. Yeah, Burton. You know, the criticism that was always made of him as an actor was that uh, yeah, he was just this voice. What a voice it is! And I think there's the combination of that, which is entrancing, and then Eastwood with his amazing movement. Really, that sort of feline, panther-like grace he has. It's described as. Uh quote it and i don't have it something lethargy oh yeah burton in a documentary yeah. uh, about uh, eastwood he said yes he's got this quality of sort of dynamic lethargy it's so amazing yeah that so characterization great. is amazing it's really good so i think that works really really well in the the, the film uh l- like that and the nexus to roger federer <laughs> just a great page of writing uh can you parse that oh yeah i think i talk about the way that um at one particular moment they, the Germans throw a stick grenade at Eastwood, and he has lots of time to bend down and sort of throw it back to them before it explodes. Because I talk about this way that Eastwood is always so unhurried, and he's always moving with this great grace, irrespective of how dramatic the things are that he's got to do. And I liken him to Roger Federer, because as we know, the thing about Federer is that it always seems that he has more time than his opponents, that he inhabits a different relation to time. Uh, so he he rarely looks hurried. Um, and it's just struck me that there's that, that similarity. Of course, the reality is not that Roger... Federer has more time. It's that he's taking away his opponent's time, but it ah. manifests itself as uh, him looking, uh, you know, rather well, famously sort of graceful. Yeah, no, I-, I love the I love the connection between Eastwood and Federer. I got a real kick out of that. Um, favorite Eastwood performance? Yeah, do you know I'm really not crazy about Eastwood as a as as, as I didn't a, get that sense. Yeah, yeah, I mean it's um I mean he's certainly better as a an actor than he is as a director I think. But I if I had to choose I think uh, yeah I think Dirty Harry is pretty amazing and as my friend David Thompson the great film critic says about uh, Eastwood as Dirty Harry the great thing about Dirty Harry is his tweed jacket. <laughs> <laughs> it's not the 44 Magnum it's the tweed jacket. What have you watched recently, TV or film? Oh, great. That you enjoyed or that's intriguing enough that you might write about it? Well, um, if I was going to write about another film at length, it would be, you know, another old film, uh, Point Blank by John Borman starring Lee Marvin. But in terms of. You mentioned that in here as well, I think. Yeah. You know, I I, I think I might do that. But in terms of recent films then oh yeah i mean i've just been obsessed to the to to an insane degree by uh free solo oh i just watched it yesterday oh, or no really? day, be- day before yesterday uh-huh. blown away it's so great isn't it and it's it's such a i mean as a technically as a piece of as a as a record uh, a filmic record of a of an amazing human achievement it's it's just fabulous but i think it's also so interesting, really. The the sort of yeah, he, he's an extremely interesting character, Alex Honnold. So it's uh, what what yeah. What I guess the, a tribute to it is the way that we know he survives, 
But even so, there's bits of it that you have to watch between your fingers because it's so scary. And it's, uh, yeah, it's one that should have won best cin- cinematography as well, I think. I feel like it should have won, this is just a casual conversation I have with somebody, it should have been nominated for best picture. Uh, yeah, that's it was, right. It, it, it was cinema. Yeah, it really was. It, yeah, I, I completely agree. Yeah, it was really, and of course, they're beneficiaries. I think this is probably a great era for um, climbing films, you know, because I also saw The Dawn Wall, which was really good. Right. In that, you know, they haven't got to lug quite the heavy equipment that they did when they were trying to climb Everest back in the, sure. <laughs> back in the day. But, you must yeah. have seen uh, Man on Wire. Yeah, of course, this that's was, fabulous. This was on the same level, in my opinion, maybe even trans- more transcendent because of the stakes. That's right. And because um, also there's none of the, uh, you know, it's it's a it's a, a record of... I actually read the other day that Jimmy Chin said somewhere they're thinking of releasing, as it were, the uncut version where you can experience all four hours of the climb in be real time. That would be amazing. Um, and the other film, I mean, the, the Oscars, it's... I mean, I think... I never dislike living in LA more than the Oscars with when the Oscars are on because it's so it's so idiotic year after year and uh, although I haven't seen the green book and have no desire to it's just inconceivable to me that Roma didn't win uh Roma is just such a stunning piece of sure. uh, uh, filmmaking and it perhaps it sounds foolish to say it should have won rather than this film which did win which I haven't seen but uh it's hard to believe some, and also I thought the film by Pavel Pavlikovsky, Cold War, was 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 pretty incredible. Do you consume TV? Do you like anything on TV these days? Uh, yeah, uh, we watch quite a bit of TV, but um, I'm always behind with things. Sure. So you know, so for example, I've never seen The Sopranos. I feel it's too late to start now, and that I'm very oh, it's it's aged well. Oh, has it? I promise yeah, you. But it's, it's what a well. what a commitment it yeah, seems. Yeah. So really, I mean, the two box, you know, uh, box sets, as it were, uh, drama that we've most enjoyed, it would be either um, Generation Kill, which was only a short uh, series, I think it was six episodes, Band of Brothers, but uh, which was also great. But nothing gave us more pleasure than the only thing that we've watched six seasons of is Veep, I think. Okay. Which seemed to be, have all the, it just so wonderful. And of course, we... We loved What's-Her-Name, even though by the end she's a kind of evil character like Macbeth, isn't she? Sure. <laughs> Julia Louis-Dreyfus. That's right, yeah. yeah. Um, where's your favorite place to write? Oh, I mean, in a sense, it doesn't matter. I can I can do it anywhere, which is, uh, or perhaps I could should more accurately say, I can not do it anywhere. I, it's equally easy, equally difficult, irrespective of, of where I am. Do you do long form or do you ha- have a computer or do you mix? Uh, the computer, yeah. Okay. And I've got sort of little notes, but uh, my computer and I are pretty much at one. Have you read anything good recently? Yeah, a lot. Um, I went to this great literature fest, writer's festival out in uh, Rancho Mirage uh, in... Um, Near Palm Springs. Yeah, that's right. I think it was in, in end of January. And there, it was an amazing festival. I went to so many great sessions, and Rick Rick Atkinson, the military historian, gave an incredible talk. And so, and I thought, okay, I'll, there's, there's famously his trilogy of books uh, about the liberation of Western Europe. Volume one is um, uh, the North Africa campaign. Volume two, Italy, and then volume three, from D-Day to the, you know, to the, to the end of the war. And I just felt I was too impatient, really, to get to D-Day. So I started with volume three. I've just finished that, which is really, really strong, I think. How do you decide what to read? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's a combination of books getting uh, 
getting sent to me by publishers who who say, you know, uh, I think you might like this, and 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 quite often I do, and then you know stuff that is just been uh, piled up, some stuff that I just come across. You know, so there's no filter really. No, not really. I mean, You're sometimes. Open. I mean, there's. Uh, I mean, it's not uncommon for middle-aged men to spend more and more of their time reading military history, and I certainly fit in with that uh, with that sort of demographic. Do you have any? This is a, originally this this podcast. The conceit of it was to be a uh, exploration of the business and culture of book selling in the twenty first century. Oh, yeah. So we interviewed uh, probably interviewed about one hundred and twenty different bookstores across America, Canada, and Australia, and even a couple of countries in Europe. One one in Paris. It pivoted to authors. Um, but what are some of your favorite bookstores? Oh, well, that one of them is very near here. You know, Book Soup is absolutely fantastic. And then tonight I'm going on to uh, to Skylight Books. And what I'm struck by is the way that, you know, I mean, two things, really. I mean, I think these are great times for independent bookstores. They, they've survived the real, you know, the real the te- worst, the terror past. years. Yeah. yeah. And then in tandem with that, I mean, the two things I think happened at exactly the same time. When electronic books, first of all, came along, there was all this kind of thing. Oh, it's going to be the end of the book. It's all, it's the end of the world. It's finished. And then I think what happened is that uh, when it became possible that you could get the content electronically then what's happened is actually far from being the end of the book we're now living through a real golden age of book design precisely because uh, you know you can if you want get the content in this you know efficient form or you can read this you know uh, rather more uh, inefficient uh, more difficult to transport thing called a book but yeah i think books have, have rarely look, looked more lovely and bookstores i think there's this thing that uh, you know uh, bookstores now now after that period when they were endangered then we really became aware of how much they meant to us not just because they were nice places to to buy books but we realized god actually if you're early for a meeting or something there's no better place to uh, you know to to spend some time sure and this whole thing of you know the events and all this kind of stuff so yeah it's um it's a wonderful period for um for independent bookstores, you know, as long as the stock is is wide ranging, I mean, there's no. It seems to me there's no value in a in an independent store if it's just basically a smaller version of Barnes and Noble. Sure, sure. You know, uh, i.e., you've just got you've got the same books but fewer copies. You know, maybe you've even got a, a, a sort of narrower thing. As long as you get away from that homogenized uh, uh, stock, then uh, and yeah, I mean, what what I like like is uh, you know really quite sort of whether the input of the people running the the bookstore is all determining. And then I remember in when I was in living in Austin for a while in Texas, there was an independent bookstore. It was so cool that they only stocked independent books published by independent booksellers. Mm. So I thought, you know, because most most of my books are published by Pantheon, part of, um, you know, Random House. Geez, you know, why are they discriminating against me? I'm exactly the kind of author they should be supporting. Sure, sure. (laughs) It's just like with the music business, right? There's major labels and then there's indie labels, just like there's indie imprints within the overall umbrella. Yeah, that's right. It's part of the... But uh, I've always, I found that, you know, we have this uh, um, idea of these commercial publishers, the cliched vision of them is that they're only concerned with money. But I mean, what I was, you know, it's really kind of, I can't fault the publishers for their willingness to publish uh, a book like the book on, on Stalker, which really, I think it's fair to say, had very, very limited commercial appeal. Yeah. 
one of the things that I've heard, common refrains from authors and their publishers is uh, there's a, there has to be a certain level of alchemy between the two. They have to be willing to take a chance on certain projects and there has to be some sort of like mutual goodwill, I guess. And uh, the, a lot of the authors that have books come out, they, they love their publishers and vice versa because they understand each other from the beginning. It's not always commercial. It has to be a, a component, but it's not the primary driver of art. Yeah, I guess it d- depends on what your motivations are. You yeah. know, I mean, I, I'm certainly not one of these uh, writers who sort of despises people who can come up with, uh, you know, really quite formula-driven uh, bestsellers. Uh, you know, in fact, I respect people who can do that. I respect. I know I've them. read that about you. Like plot is one of you consider it a weak point. I mean, yeah, I respect them precisely because they're doing something that I'm absolutely incapable of doing. Yeah. However badly I might want to. Well, whatever it is that you're doing, you're doing. <laughs> you do extremely well. And what is it again? Remind me. <laughs> uh, it generate thought, create pause in a very tumultuous, busy, fast-paced life. Uh, you say things that make people think. Um, and I think as a writer, that's what you want. So I have, I have one final question, a selfish question. Talk for a moment about your fascination with Roger Federer, which is a mutual fascination, obsession, passion of mine, by the way. Uh, what was the, what was the match that made you sort of go, wow, and do what I cannot do, which is articulate his variety of skill sets? Yeah, well, I guess I was lucky enough at Indian Wells two years ago to, I had some sort of press pass for that. So I, I saw Roger at a, 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 a the real bonus phase. I mean, there was that time, you know, when he was just winning everything and we just took it for granted. And then he entered that vulnerable phase where it seemed he was destined to always get beaten by uh, Nadal and, and particularly Djokovic. Djokovic. Yeah, and it seemed like it was over. And then, you know, there was this, that wonderful thing after he had that long layoff when he came back with that revitalized backhand, which had always been the kind of his, you know, what made him particularly vulnerable to the high-bouncing Nadal forehand, came back with that, you know, amazing uh, backhand. And it was just so wonderful to see him there with all of his old grace, you know, but really at a time when we realized, oh, we're not, you know, he's not going to be around forever. What I likened it to in a, in a piece I wrote is that, you know, you still come across people in their Typically, they're in their 70s now. And the fact that they once saw Jimi Hendrix constituted one of the things that made their life worthwhile. And I think, you know, in a, in a sort of, in a, in a way, uh, I felt similarly that, oh, yeah, I've now, I've seen Roger Federer for, for real. And that, that sort of made my life worthwhile. <laughs> I feel the same way. I've had, I've, I'm, as many things as may go wrong, I've had the fortune of seeing him half a dozen times. Oh, have you? Great. Yeah, I saw him in his second U.S. Open, or the first U.S. Open that he won right after he had won Wimbledon. Oh, yeah. Nobody knew who he was. I went to see the match against James Blake. Right. And we were rooting, my, my girlfriend and now wife, we were rooting for uh, James Blake because he was the American. Yeah. I had no idea who this guy Roger Federer was. And he systematically decimated James Blake. (laughs) And I was like, wow. But the first match that I saw of his that really made me say, okay, changing of the guard was when he played Pete Sampras in the U.S. Open before he won. Uh Uh, I think it was a semifinal or quarterfinal. I can't remember. But you almost see this sort of metamorphosis from Roger Federer, the boy, to Roger Federer, the man that we know today and it happened in the course of that match and it's one of the things that i love about tennis is that 
again, I can't articulate it in writing, but you certainly can. But this idea of how a story unfolds, but no words are spoken. Oh yeah. You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that match between him was when I saw it. And then ever since then, I've just been enamored by all the various things, you know, the David Foster Wallace writings on yeah, him that's and great. all yeah. the stuff that comes out about him is so on point, but it's, I've seen it commonly. I read the piece that you wrote about him in the Guardian recently, and you're one of the few that can actually transcend his transcendence in terms of explaining oh, yeah. him. So, well, also in that piece, I mean, I do mention, you You know, it's this thing where what I'm struck by is it really does seem that Roger has a great sense of humor, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. And I feel sure if we could just meet, then I feel sure we'd get on really well. <laughs> Me too. <you> know? <laughs> Me too. Now, one day, hopefully, we can both meet him and yeah, hang out with him. And, that be, and just, yeah, get him on the show. Why isn't he here this time? Oh, he's in Dubai, isn't he? Yeah. He's, yeah. Uh, well, he's taking a lot of time off. I hopefully, I hope he's, you think he's got one more Grand Slam in him? Or is it? Potentially. I mean, he's through to the semis at, in Dubai, also, where yeah. it's possible he could meet in the final Sissipas, who, of course, did for him at... Um, the Australian. Yeah, that's right. Fascinating stuff. Jeff Dyer, thank you so much. Thank you. What fun that was. You've been listening to Book Stories. Please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to shows. Book Stories is an alternate Thursdays production. Special thanks to Savannah Wright for production assistance. I'm Vic Singh. Thanks for listening.